varmt välkomna till Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus. Nu ska ni få möta författaren Douglas Stewart. Och vem möter han på vår scen om inte Malin Ullgren? Låt samtalet ta sin början. He arrived from nowhere. No, that's not true. He, like everybody else, arrived from somewhere. From a place, a time, a socio-economic background that he depicted in such a way that thousands and thousands of readers across this fragile world took his debut novel to their hearts. And the achievement was so remarkable, I think, since this happened to be a person who arrived into the literary world as a full-blown writer from the very first page. Shaggy Bain was a prime example of literature of the highest carrot, literature making us all experience the damning, disastrous, destructive lives that people actually have to endure. And still, still, all through this piece of art, You heard the voice of a humanist, the beat of a pulsating heart refusing to stop beating. And if some people thought that this debut was simply a flash in the night, then they were wrong. And it's proved with such considerable and inexorable force by the new novel, Young Mango, in Swedish Unge Mango, translated by Eva Osefeldt, who dressed who dressed Shaggy Bane in such on-the-spot Swedish, and she deserves what? Yes. And the publishing house is Albert Bonniers Verlag. And um, some of you may have met our guest of honor uh, last year in August, on the 23rd of August, when he graced International Writers' Stage. And I have to admit that since this is my very last week, Chairing this stage, I am so grateful, I am happy, and I am moved that this cherished writer was able to arrive in Stockholm before I evaporate or simply withdraw into the shadows. This evening you meet him in conversation with Malin Ullgren, and that said, please welcome from New York City, accompanied by Malin, Mr. Douglas Stewart. Again. <laughs> Hello again. Thank you for having me back in Stockholm. It's so good to see everybody. I think you're more than welcome. That's the impression I get. Um, only after two books, a full house. I don't know how, how common that is or how if, if that's usually how it goes with just two books. But l let's start there. I mean, um, it's just two years ago that your debut novel, Shaggy Bane, uh, was published just before the pandemic. <laughs> and it blew up, if that's a positive description, <laughs> into a great success. success. Um, have you gotten used to it, to being like an internationally <laughs> famous writer? I think uh, because I had it happened so quickly and it happened so publicly, everybody thinks that the success came overnight in some way. Mm. But Shuggy was a book that was 12 years in the in the making, 10 years in the writing. And for me, it was a very private, personal toil over that time. I didn't share it with anyone. And in fact, the very first draft of Shuggy Bane was 1,800 pages. Um, and it was these two <laughs> enormous legal binders. You know, I have a very complicated relationship with literature and with the class system that, that bore me and that I grew up in. And I didn't think I had permission to write a book. And so I just sat down at my desk one day while I was working full-time in fashion, and I began to write. And the first 
I, you know, I just said, just write a, another sentence, a paragraph, a, a story. And the problem with that is you end up with an 1,800-page first draft. And I turned to my husband and, and I said to him, will you read this? And he said, yeah, okay, if, you know, if I must. <laughs> and the poor guy went into the other room and I was listening to him through the doorway. And I gave him about four hours and I was listening to him sigh and, and sort of laugh. And I went in and I said, are you finished? And he said, no, no. And it took him about seven months to read it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I looked at it again recently and for the first 200 pages he uses a very fine nibbed pen and he attends to every character the world I'm building my use of language and then about page 200 he gives up the will to live and he, <laughs> he gets this big fat sharpie and he just starts to do this through whole pages and in the margin he writes ugh or yes or stop it um, but he I begged him and then I badgered him to read the first draft of Shuggy ages you know 12 years ago and he did it and he spent seven months doing it and then he gave it back to me and I was so offended that he'd done exactly what I'd asked him to that I didn't speak to him for seven weeks. <laughs> no, really? Yeah, so it, really, really. <laughs> and so actually he didn't read Young Mungo until it was finished because the marriage couldn't take it. Uh, you still have a ring. We still yeah. have a ring, yeah. yeah. It does, you know, move. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, let's, let's go on there. You said... Uh, you you started writing. Uh, you were in the fashion industry, uh, and quite some big labels as well, um, like the Gap and uh, or Gap and Kate Spade and mm -hmm. and for how long had you had you had that? Uh, I mean, you didn't you didn't grow up in a reading home mm. at all, and you started reading you yourself quite late. That's right. So how did this idea start growing inside of you that you were going to write? Yeah, well, I mean, you're right. We didn't grow up in a house with books and it wasn't so unusual for, for our house or for the neighbours. You know, we, I think we got our culture from television and books seemed a little bit too middle class, too highbrow. We didn't quite know how to access them. The culture were, wasn't directed towards us. But I begin to read at 17 or 18, you know, it's after my own mother had died and school emptied out because a lot of kids went to go find work or to get on with their lives. And I was often just in English class and it was just me and my teacher. That was, it was a class of one. And he started to give me books and I was like devouring them as quickly as I could. And we read everything that was on the syllabus from Thomas Hardy to Daphne du Maurier, Shakespeare. And then without being able to say it to me, he realized I was a bit sort of, uh, effeminate, a bit fruity. And so he started to slide uh, Tennessee Williams around the table to me. And he said, I think you quite like this. And he never said anything else. And I, and I loved it. Mm. Um, and, you know, he, it was absolutely everything I wanted. And actually there's a bit of Amanda Wingfield and a bit of Blanche Dubois in Agnes Bain. But, but it was too late for me to give my life to academia or to books. I was so remedial. I was so far behind. And so instead I went into textiles. You know, I, I had teachers that cared very deeply for me. And they said, you're an artistic kid that has terrible, you know, academic track record. My, ed my own education had been so disrupted by bullying for being queer. And also my mother was sick my entire life with alcoholism. And so there were many days, there were weeks I just couldn't go to school. I couldn't leave her. And so by the time I'm 18, I can draw. I'm, I'm quite, I have an ability with imaginary worlds. And they say, that's great you should do textiles, because textiles is a trade. You'll always be employed as a Scotsman if you study textiles. Mm. And in fact, when I came out of college, even Thatcher had decimated the textile industry too. So, <laughs> so I thought, oh, fuck, uh, what am I going to do? And I had to go and do a master's. But it was my master's that actually took me to New York and took me into fashion. And I worked for Calvin and for Ralph and for Kate and for the Gap. Calvin Klein. Yeah. Ralph Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not my cousin Calvin, my uncle Calvin. <laughs> uh, no, Calvin Klein. But at the height of my fashion career, I was, I was desperately unhappy because I wasn't expressing myself properly. Were you? Desperately unhappy. Yeah, I think the thing that had attracted me to fashion in the first place was the ability to tell stories, mm. was the ability to connect with someone you didn't know and move them and, and make them use their imagination and for them to travel through clothing. And eventually my career just became about making stuff and managing huge international teams to make more stuff. And so for me, the passion went out of it. And that's really when I sat down to write Shaggy Bane. It was a winter afternoon in 2008. And as soon as I began, 
I could go, you know, two, three, four weeks where I couldn't get back to a page because my job was so demanding. Mm. But I dreamt of it. I couldn't wait. It was like if I had 30 minutes in a week, it was the best 30 minutes. But did you never <clears throat> before that, did you ever before that think, I want to write? No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. Uh, you know, I would write some snippets. I would write a little bit of prose, perhaps some dialogue, but nothing was really sort of catching momentum. And that's why when I began writing Shaggy Bane, I actually began in the middle of the book. I wrote chapter 13 first, which is the scene where the two brothers go scrapping for copper and leak yeah. the, the middle brothers on the sea of slag. And it came to me because I'd always been a visual thinker, almost like a piece of cinema. I could see every every scene, every glimpse that the camera would see and, and for the whole chapter and then my struggle was capturing it on in words on the page and actually I approach a lot of my writing like that I'm not a writer that often comes to a chapter without knowing what's going to happen because I carry it in my mind and images for a long time before I set it down I don't sit at the page and then fumble through something I can see it I fumble through it in my mind for a long time and then I set it down you're, you're mentioning your your ability to visualize or or I mean, it's it's uh, it's rather striking when you read both your novels. How how worlds come alive, I think, uh, and that makes me uh, think that oh, so this has happened to him, and this has happened to him, to him, and this has happened as well. Because I can't imagine that you can can sort of make it so real mm. when you you talk about you know the the copper excursion and. So, do you make those things up? Yeah, I do. And in fact, <laughs> I use my imagination. Um, but but I come from the same milieu, the same streets, the same circumstances yeah. as Shuggy and of Mungo also. You know, you can consider the books almost as a cycle of manhood. These are young Glaswegian men heading towards their adulthood. And they, and they almost, you know, they could be cousins in a way. They could be... Mm two lenses of a camera looking at the same time and place. But when I began to write Shuggy, I thought I was going to write it from an eight-year-old boy's point of view. I thought we were going to really look at this young man and he would look at addiction and mass unemployment and the disintegration of traditional male-female relationships, all of these things. And as, almost as soon as I began, the chorus rushed in and said, it, you can't tell this without us. And that's when it stopped being a work of biography and started to become a work of fiction. Mm. Because so much of the book takes place in rooms that I, if I'm a proxy for Shuggy, could never have been in. And I found that I could be braver when I did that, when I could really give over to fiction. Mm. Because part of the catharsis of writing this book for me, as someone who suffered with addiction, with poverty, with shame, with bullying for queerness, was was considering the motivation of fictional characters that weren't uh, myself. And so when I could, you know, I'd always carried that grief and loss Uh, I'd always carried a lot of wounds from being bullied, from being ostracized. And when I sat down and I thought, but why did those people do that? I came to a real place of healing through that. And so that was the power of fiction for me. And that was the the, the sort of the, the change that came over me when I spoke to the all the characters and I understood all of them as deeply as I could. Mm -hmm. And also the joy of writing a working class story is the chorus because so many people live through the same thing at the same time. Mm -hmm. The houses are standardized, the wages are standardized, we live in close relation to one another. You know, this is not a book, neither of my books are about a middle class family that are going through a tough time on a street where everyone's flourishing. This is about a community in crisis often. Mm -hmm. It sure is. And how how would you describe uh, Young Mungo? Uh, what is it about? For those <laughs> who haven't read it. That's a big question. <laughs> uh, um, you know, I think it's a romance. It's a romance wrapped in social realism, in a thriller, and a little bit of horror. Um, mm -hmm. it, you've read it, you can tell. <laughs> um, but it's a story at its heart about Mungo Hamilton, who is named after the patron saint of Glasgow, a very beloved saint who does very childlike miracles. Uh, but he's named after the saint because he's meant to bring some healing to some divisions in the community mm. and inside his family. But he's a young man who's working class. He's he's quite a good looking young lad, but he's not especially bright. He doesn't have such a bright future. He's very ordinary. 
and he is almost 16 and his mother's a very absent woman. His father has passed away. His mother is a bit of a rascal. She's a very young mother. She's raised her three children. Mungo's the youngest of three, the eldest being 18, Hamish, Jodie in the middle, and then Mungo at only 15. And their mother, Maureen, is ready to get back out and see his life. And so she keeps disappearing. She disappears for weeks at a time. And so Mungo is being raised really by his brother and his sister. And his brother is the leader of a local gang. And so wants a life of mischief and mayhem and violence for the young, the young brother. And his sister is a really bright, capable young woman that could lead a nation one day if only she can survive her two brothers. Um, and that's a question for Jodie in the book. You know, can she, can she get over these two men that are such a burden on her in every single way? But he's a lonely young man, and one day he goes out onto the landscape, the housing scheme, and he meets another young man called James. And James is raising pigeons in a ducat, which is like a public pigeon loft that's built on, it's called a doofslag, doofslag? Yeah. It's the only <laughs> Swedish I know. It's the only, it's, I, know some, I know some Swedish. Thank you, that was so kind. Because <laughs> uh, it was a terrible pronunciation, I'm sure. No, 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 but, um, we all got you. <laughs> you got me. But he's raising pigeons, you know, on communal land. And he's a very gentle, very kind young man, very stoic and quiet. And they become friends in their loneliness, and then they fall in love. They do. Um, and this cover, it's not... Exactly, a James and Mango, even if <laughs> <laughs> it's two sweaty young men That'll that comes to enough. mind while yeah. you read. Uh, it's a photograph uh, by a German artist, right? And you chose it mm -hmm. yourself. Why did you do that? Well, James and Mungo have a very dangerous love. It's a dangerous first love. First of all, the consequences for being working class men and being gay are absolutely severe where they, these boys are growing up and it's very taboo. But also Mungo is the younger brother of a young, of the Protestant gang leader and James is a Catholic. So they've fallen in love across a sectarian divide. This photo for me showed all of the, the passion and the simplicity and the honesty of a first kiss. But when Wolfgang Tillmans first displayed it in 2002, people went into the art gallery it was hung in on the west coast of America and they tore it from the wall and they desecrated it. Wolfgang is a, a Turner Prize winning artist and I can't imagine anybody through their homophobia being so enraged uh, that they would want to destroy a piece of public art. And when I was thinking about what captures the love and the beauty of these two young characters, but then also the, the fear and the hate that they face for something as simple as love, this image was perfect for me. Mm -hmm. and, and when I asked Wolfgang if I could use it, I didn't know if he would allow me. It's incredibly creatively generous mm -hmm. to allow someone else to put your photograph on their book. Mm -hmm. And I was blown away that he said yes. Mm -hmm. And then I got really nervous. But, uh, <laughs> but I had, it's not the cover of the US version because America's having a problem at the moment finding its heart. And last week I was in Florida and I was in a synagogue and I was in a church and I brought the UK version and I just kept holding it up. And then I had to say to the crowd, please don't call the cops on me. I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> but it's something as simple as a kiss. And did you have a discussion about that with your, with your American publisher? Yeah, we did. And I think, you know, it's a country that is so big, so conservative outside of the liberal cities that I had to honor my publishers have some kind of business to do and some yeah. kind of need for the book to reach readers. Mm. And in a way you have to, there could be kids in Florida or kids in Alabama that need to read a book like this, that need yeah. this in their life. And so I, I have a desire to reach them. Mm. I say kids, but I mean young people. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Everyone's a kid to me, I think is the real truth. Um, so we, we've touched on it and in Young Mango, just as in, in Shaggy Bane, um, the question of masculinity about uh, surviving it mm -hmm. um, is, is a, a big and important theme. And why has this been an important theme for the first two books you've written? It might actually be a theme for me for much for life. of my career, yeah. yeah. I think masculinity is something I've always wrestled with. I, I grew up in a place 
where the men were very good, but they were very silent and quite narrow and quite tight. Um, and the acceptable forms of masculinity, even for heterosexual men, were very prescribed. You had to be hard working and hard fighting and hard loving and, and hard drinking. You had to be a real man's man. And for me, I was never that. I could never be, I couldn't even get close to it. But it didn't stop me spending all of my youth performing my masculinity and, and having, having to pretend that I was like it. And that would include things like going to gang fights and being as close as I could get to it to get a participation medal, but as far enough away from it because I was an absolute coward. Mm. Um, and so always like trying to judge where in the pack I should be in this just to, just to be a part of it. But... But the consequential for Mungo in this book is man up. Like everybody, mm. Even the women around him say, man up, mm. get tough, you know, do, you know, fight back, do all of this. And, and in fact, it's a story, it's a novel told over two timelines. And one of them is this beautiful love story in Glasgow that's, that's wrapped in everything that that entails. But the other one takes place a little bit in the future where Mungo is sent to the north of Scotland mm. with two men, two men that he doesn't know. Uh, but he's sent there ostensibly to get them off the streets that are so violent and send them into nature. But it's really to make a man out of them, to teach them how to hunt and to fish and to camp and all the things that young men should know what to do. But these men start as quite comedic characters and the weekend, as the weather turns, becomes very dark. Mm. And I was thinking about how I grew up in such a gendered world and certainly as the son of a single parent, mm. you know, no opportunity was missed to get me into the company of men. And by it, your mother? Or? By everybody. Mm -hmm. and, and for the other men around me. And whether you were going fishing in the canal or somebody had a car engine that needed fixed or somebody was building a garden shed or there was kicking a ball in a field, we, or even if it was going away with the church, you know, it was as long as you were around men, it was such a safe place to be. For the most part, that's true. Were, were you pushed into it, you mean? Or? Yeah. 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 Society just sent me into it. And, mm -hmm. and my mother, I think, never thought twice. Um, and she was doing the right thing, you know, to, from her point of view. Every yeah. boy needs a father influence or needs a male influence was the understanding. But I think a lot of young boys have found themselves in places where they shouldn't be and very far from the nurturing environment of home and, and filled with fear and filled with, God, what am I doing here? And so I was thinking about how we lived in that gendered world, but then also how we were very naive to where the monsters, where the bad bogey men were. Mm. We hadn't reckoned with the, the church. We hadn't reckoned with scout leaders or, you know, the, the bad men that were necessarily in our community. We were very naive as a, as a society. And that was a, a great place for me to build my fiction from when I was thinking about gender and masculinity. But it's a terrifying place for Mungo to be. Mm. It's... Um, yeah, I, I was thinking about that uh, concept about men as offenders, not just of women, but also of, of men, mm -hmm. uh, and men as, as victims of, of sexual violence, for example. Um, the, did you think, I mean, you know, we've come a far way in certain places around the world, so to speak. I mean, but it's still a young history, queer yeah. history, um, or this, um, it's, its achievements. Um, so portraying men as, uh, as uh, gay rapers, uh, rapists, mm -hmm. Uh, did you think twice about that? I mean, could this hurt? No, I never uh, did. And and I think there's always been the that. Movement. Yeah, there's always been that um, stigma and that pain in the community. But the men who do the violent things in the book are not gay. They're bad men. Mm. Um, and in fact, I wanted to juxtapose what bad men are like versus what the, the beauty of love, mm. or first queer love is like. Mm. Because oftentimes as a young boy and as young men, we were often thought of, you're going to grow up to be, do you want to be like this? You're going to be a pervert. You want to grow up to be a pervert? Mm. And of course you don't grow up to be a pervert. You grow up to be a functioning member of society that looks for love and stability and uh, you know, just a happy life like anybody does. And yet we could never see the monsters and we still couldn't see the monsters. You know, I don't think the priests that do the things they do identify as gay men. They're just bad men, mm. right? They're bad men. Mm. Um, and so we have to be able to pull those two things apart as a distinction. Mm. But part of why I wanted to write the book was in 2016 when I began the book, we were seeing women have a real reckoning with Me Too mm. and they were talking about sexual trauma and we were finally getting honest and putting a face 
space on things and, and sharing stories. And I felt so much silence from men. Mm. And I think so many men have been through places of sexual vulnerability and sexual violence. And we we had still had nowhere to take our stories. Mm. We still had nowhere to, to share those things. And that, for me, was part of the problem. Because when a lot of the men in the book who don't even go through sexual violence, it's all about compounding silence, you know, not allowed as men to have a full spectrum of emotions, vulnerability, fear, uncertainty, but instead always having to be sure and strong and angry. And and that for me was the genesis of the book, that sort of how that was became very meta and layered on top of each other. Mm. There's still rather a lot of silence surrounding those questions. Isn't there? there? There really is. And, <clears throat> and I mean, you know, part of the reason I think that for me, the distance to New York to uh, Scotland was important is actually Americans are not that silent. <laughs> Americans will tell you about a lot of their troubles. And for me as a Scotsman, that was very helpful in my formation. Mm -hmm. And the distance allowed me to look back and look at things in Shuggy Bane and things that would inform Mungo and think we don't talk enough about these things. We don't we don't share these things. And, but the men in the book are incredibly silent and they, and they hold everything in very tightly. And I came to actually have a huge amount of respect for that, which is a strange thing to say, I understand. But I thought about the men that I grew up around and how dangerous their jobs were. I mean, you know, I sit at a desk. If someone sends me an email that's off color, I get really upset and I hate my job. <laughs> but I come from miners. I come from shipbuilders. I come from men that put slate roofs on really tall buildings. Who could they, die every day in the workplace. At any minute of every any day. Minute, and yeah. often did. You know, there was often explosions in the mine. They collapsed. And we never said to them, are you okay? Are you happy? Do you want to do that? Do you have any other ambitions? Because we couldn't. Because we relied on them, first of all, to make money. You wish money you had your fingers still. Or, yeah, yeah, but any of it, you know, how do you feel in the dark all day long? Mm. And the men couldn't ask it of each other. Because if you opened that rift, what would pour forth from it? Of course I'm terrified. And actually, Deborah Orr, the Scottish writer, mm. wrote a really wonderful thing about her own father as an 18-year-old man who went to the steelworks. And on his first day, he goes and he's very happy. And a girder sort of swings through the air and almost cleaves him in two. Mm. And he, as a man, thought, oh my, it became very real for him. And he couldn't go back. And it affected everything in the community for him because then he was seen as a cowardly man mm. as opposed to a sensible man. <laughs> um, but he just couldn't go back and face that. It was, he lost his masculinity in that way. And I thought about all of our fathers in that way and how they had to be silent mm. because otherwise what would come forth? There's a really interesting discussion between uh, Mango's neighbour, Mrs. Campbell, Mm -hmm. and his sister Jodie. And they talk about these things, one could say, in, in the book. Um, they talk about, I mean, Mrs. Campbell is the elder generation and she she tries to explain to Jodie, who's very critical, of course, and naturally so, of, of those violent men who mm -hmm. beat up their wives after a, a, a bad football game or whatever. <clears throat> and And Mrs. Campbell, she tries to explain to the younger woman what these men have actually <laughs> gone through, sort of. And she also um, defends their violence as an effect of yeah. of how tough it is. It's like older and you know, two generations of women trying to cope with the violence they're both victims yeah. of. And that was that was my way of writing about a very ugly topic was mm. to have these women fight about it yeah. and to to bring different perspectives because Jodie is correct as a younger woman you should not put up with that but Mrs Campbell brings a very historical perspective to it and she says you know nothing about men and their anger to this young woman who hasn't even is still living at home with her mother and is still in high school and it was an ugly thing to write but but I wanted just to sort of give a historical sort of perspective to it and to show how these two women could very much disagree on what this is and Jodie of course is is correct but Mrs Campbell I think she knows I, something as well she knows something as well and I often use the women in my book the female characters to see the world because the men can't see it and so no matter what it is the women I always had known growing up were were the remarkable strength were the ones that were able to sort of parse what was happening on socially and in the landscape and in the home and with the government whereas the men just were so clothes that they couldn't process it and so in a way the females Jodie and Mrs Campbell and and these characters and even you know the women in Shaggy Bane become our narrators they become mm. the ones to be able to show us what's happening on the landscape mm. emotionally they pr can process it in a way the men can't mm. um, Glasgow where you were born mm -hmm. uh, 
it it went through that process of sort of deindustrial. <laughs> how do you say that? Industrialization. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, as so many other cities around the world, the Western world, uh, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and the effect was terrible, mm -hmm. um, you know, with with men on the dole and, and the poverty that followed. Um, when 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 do you get the reaction? I mean, I'm struck. I, I know a bit about Glasgow in those days. I was there, as I told you. I know it wasn't prospering, <laughs> even if it was about to become something else. I think mid nineties, but it was obviously poor, tough. Mm -hmm areas. Um, are, are some of your readers uh, shocked by the poverty that you're describing? Because this is like Western Europe and, and kids aren't eating enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my readers aren't shocked at all. Um, and is that, are you talking about Glaswegian readers? Uh, no. Oh, I, world. Uh, yeah, I, I guess they are. And I mean, For Englishmen, I don't know. <laughs> well, I think the book never changes, but the context tells me the answers and the questions, the conversations I have tell me much more about the readers than it tells me about my work, if that makes sense, because countries are very different. It was a very interesting conversation when I toured Germany mm. because the Germans perhaps didn't have such a visible working class that had struggled, nor did they understand perhaps why a mother would turn towards addiction. It was illogical to them, it seemed to me, to my to my German readers. Whereas when you go to Ireland or to Spain or, or to Pittsburgh and you talk to the African-American community, they understand it perfectly. Mm. You don't have to explain Explain it. They understand what it means to be overlooked, to be abandoned, to feel very sort of stuck in a way where women aren't given enough opportunity. And the thing about Glasgow is this book doesn't look to speak to Glasgow. Glasgow's always been an enormously diverse city. It has extreme wealth, has some of the oldest, most beautiful culture in the country. But we had 26% unemployment in some of the parts of the city. Life expectancy under the Thatcher government for working class men reduced to living years. Um, she took a living years off the life of the men in my community. And, and so we had a tough time and that unemployment lasted for a decade. While conversely, the people who supported Thatcher in the South were printing money. They were, they were making so much money. It was the advent of the yuppie. So mm. you have the advent of the yuppie while you have this real decimation of the working class. Mm. And so for me, it was imperative that I wrote this story, but also wrote it from my family's perspective, from my mother's perspective, from a young queer perspective, because we don't do a great job of recording queer working class history. We, for the longest time, have been denied a voice. We've been denied the access to the rooms to be able to record our history, whether that's literature or cinema. And so when I was thinking about writing Young Mungo, I was thinking the world's so much more positive for gay people. Like, you know, we're, we're heading towards quite a bright future, I think. We still have a lot to do. Certainly trans people are really um, suffering at the moment, but, but it's better than it was when I was a kid, to put it that way. And then I thought, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't record our history or talk about it because people would love for that to be erased and people would love for us not to talk about it. And so it's important for me to show all the consequences and the peril that, that Mungo and James are in. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, you're building a, a literary universe uh, with Glasgow in the middle, so to speak. What, what's going to come next? <laughs> you sound like my editor. Um, <laughs> I have no and idea. when is it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Maybe a nap uh, will be the very first thing. to No, you know, I am... Um, I am looking to deepen my universe and to, and to broaden it. And I think that feeling of just looking at the spectrum of masculinity is something I'm really interested in. I'm always writing about community and reputation and belonging. And so I'm working on my third novel at the moment. It's too early to, to really tell you too much about that. But I'm also hopeful that Shaggy Bain's going to come to the screen. We're, we're working quite hard on that at the moment. And so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's been really exciting, and and the truth when, is, when is when is that? And well, it's not guaranteed. So oh, we're okay. hoping was the okay. that was the activation word in that sentence. Um, <laughs> we are hoping, but we're working hard on it, and so and it seems quite positive, but we're not sure yet. But you know, but when, you're involved in in uh, yeah. the script writing, and yeah, and and the reason why was is because when they approached me at first. I said, oh, I don't want, I don't know that I want to spend 10 or 12 more years with Shaggy and Agnes after I spent 10 years with them. 
And then, I, honestly, you know, you've met them. Um, <laughs> but I, I wasn't sure that I wanted to spend more time with them. And then I had to go away and reflect and think about how television was my church as mm. a kid. It was how we got our stories. It was how we learned about the world. And there are people in my family, people in my community that will never read Shaggy Bane. And I thought, I have a responsibility to here to translate this, to make it what it what it can be for the screen. And, you know, we often talk about, I grew up in a house without books, and that's true. We had one tattered copy of Flowers in the Attic, because I think every mother had that in the 80s. Ooh. Ooh. And I used to have a little sort of flick through it. But when you went into It's so our, weird when you're thinking about it. I know, it's so weird that that's the only book in the house, you know. I don't no, even no, it's just that, you know... We, yeah, it's, yeah, you know what the book's really, about. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. It's really weird stories. But but if you went into our front room, we had shelves and shelves of books. They were all red leather books. And my mother was incredibly house proud. And you would think you were in a doctor's office. Mm -hmm. But if you reached for one of the books and you took it down and you opened it, it was a video cassette cover. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you would think you were getting, I don't know... Uh, Henry James and you got yeah. Dynasty, uh, which is probably might be the same thing almost. But could be related. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it it's related, related somewhere. To, but so the appearance of books and and screen were are, are very close together for me. So you, I mean, you you grew up without books, but obviously not without stories or storytelling. Do you think all those uh, videos you watched has sort of formed you as a storyteller because you're. I mean, we talked about your your you're so able of visualizing so that I can feel what you what you see inside. Um, what did you learn? Yeah, I, I don't know so much from TV. Oh, what did I learn from television? <laughs> oh, I traveled. I mean, one of the things that the yeah, but I mean, as a writer. Oh, as a writer, uh. um, I learned not to bore people. Mm. Um, I try That's really good. through my writing not to allow a lull into. I think you get a lot from my books, but I don't think I often bore no. uh, people. I don't often, you know, you can feel a bit shaken. And so I learned about the dramatic art. I learned about holding attention. I learned about um, the unexpected through television. Mm. But I also come from a place of oral tradition. And although we didn't have books, we always had to tell stories, you know, and you couldn't go to some house, you couldn't go visit your granny or go to a neighbor's house where she wouldn't turn to you at seven years old and say, tell me what you've been up to. And she meant really tell me what you've been up to. Mm. And so you had to weave that into a narrative as well. Mm. And I've heard Colm Toybean say the same sort of thing. And you have it in pub culture, you have it, mm. you know, on a Friday night standing at the bar. And those are important ways to tell stories. And, and so for me, that's been something I've always lent on. Mm. Um, but yeah, television was... You know, it was one of the things the characters go through in my novels, and Mungo goes through this, is, as I said, Glasgow's a hugely diverse city. The Scottish Highlands are only 30 miles north of the city. They're, they're there, and, and so many people have travelled and enjoyed it. Mungo never gets to see it. He never really gets off of the housing estate he lived on. And even myself, I, I was 19 before I saw the well-heeled part of town, and actually had left Glasgow, and I'd gone to college, and I'd met girls at college and I said what do you like to do for fun and they said we love to go to the west end of Glasgow and so they took me back to my city and they introduced me to you know the art museums and the galleries and the fine restaurants and the coffee shops whatever we were doing and I'd never seen it and so that feeling of sort of not being able to travel that sort of locked in place thing is something that really affects the destinies of my characters. Um. You mentioned that you 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 don't want to bore people, and and some people where you grow up wouldn't be able to or feel comfortable uh, reading one of your novels, but they might watch a series, a TV series. Uh, but I, I think um, one of your aims as a writer, I understand it, is to sort of write um, to make your your novels available for someone like mm -hmm. Agnes mm -hmm. or. Some of the people you grew up with. How, how do you balance that sort of availability with, with like artistic integrity, or I think is it a struggle, or does it come naturally? Actually, it was it was a, it really was a struggle. I was aware when I was writing Shaggy Bain and Young Mungo that I could probably have a more successful book if I wrote it in received pronunciation, if I just used standard English to to convey this. But as soon as I began to write Shaggy Bain, I thought, who am I writing this for? Mm. Um, whose side am I on? And if Shaggy and Agnes don't ever find themselves in literature or turn to literature, and I didn't use their language, then I would have been on the side of the reader looking at these characters as opposed to where. 
I wanted to be, which was shoulder to shoulder with my characters. And so I wrote the novel for for Shuggy and Agnes. And as soon as I came to that realization at the beginning, the language could flow freely for me. And I could use English, I could use Scots, I could use Glaswegian dialect. I could tell a lot about class by how each of the individual characters talks, uh, how what they're aspiring to, the shame they're trying to hide, how the, the British imperial system had affected this mother in Glasgow. And that's when the joy really came to the writing for me. And so when you talk about integrity, it was about integrity of standing by my character and explaining their world to them, first of all. But it was part of the reason why Shuggy Bain was so soundly rejected. I think people thought that readers wouldn't be able to, to follow along. You wouldn't want to see language in this way. And I'd always known readers to be curious. I was projecting from myself. Mm. But I'd always known that we pick up books to be introduced to new language and learn new words and immerse ourselves in experience. But... But I was so confident when uh, my agent sent out the novel and she said to me, when you get a response from a publishing house, do you, do you want to know? And I said, yes, yes, this is going to be great, you know. And very quickly in two weeks, I was rejected 20 times. <laughs> soundly, soundly rejected across the board. <laughs> and the night that I won the booker, um, and I took it all in, I didn't change a comma, I didn't move, you know, a paragraph, I didn't alter anything about the manuscript. But the night that I won the booker, a journalist asked me about rejection. And, and I said, whoa, I was rejected 20 times really quickly. And my agent sort of unmutes the Zoom call. <laughs> and she went, you were rejected 44 times. I just stopped <laughs> telling you. And I thought, well, I wasn't the man that I thought I was. But, but I'd realized that I'd written the book I'd wanted to write for Agnes and Shuggy, and nothing would shake me from that. That's amazing. It's, I mean, it's, I think it's, it sounds to me as a rather unusual state of mind for a debutante. I created the art I had wanted to make, and I'd spent so long in uh, fashion, which is, you know, the intersection of mm. creativity and commerce. And I'd mm. seen how ideas can change to try and chase something, and then the idea is not worth very much mm. um, in fashion. And so I just thought, no, I've written the book I want, and if nobody reads it other than my poor husband, <laughs> so be it. Mm. Okay. Yeah. We're so glad that you, well, thank you. <laughs> stuck to that <laughs> notion. Um, tenderness and violence, tenderness and then a whole lot of violence, mm -hmm. um, and pride and uh, shame, mm -hmm. they go together intertwined through both your novels, I think. Yeah. So is that, um, was that what it was like? Or is it the way it is? Well, these people in Glasgow. I think sometimes that's what life is like. I think sometimes and sadness and joy or sadness and humor go together because one is almost the antidote or the opposite to the other. And I've known, you know, there's a saying in Scotland that says you'll have more fun at a Glaswegian funeral than you ever would at an Edinburgh wedding. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of clues in that. The idea that the working class just try to have fun no matter what is going on. And, yeah. and so I use a lot of sadness in my book and then I use humor to cut through it. Mm. But violence is also a very perverse thing. Mm. It's, it can be part of a coming of age for a young man. And there's a scene in the book where Mungo turns to his older brother Hamish, or Ha Ha, as mm. he's known. You know, that's, he's, it's a bit of a cruel joke because he's a very unfunny man. But <laughs> he's a very violent man. He's a, he's a very stern young man. Mm. And, and Mungo turns to his brother and says, why do we have to fight this pitch battle with the Catholics? And Hamish thinks about it for a while. And he says, well, it's a little bit about reputation. It's a little bit about respect. And he says, but it's just fucking fun. Mm. And that's a hard thing to explain to some people because we used to have a blast fighting on a Saturday night. You know, there was not much else to do. And it would be great to go to the park and have a bottle of Bucky or have a couple of cans of lager. And then the other lads would come over and you would fight. And... You know, so like violence and fun can also live together. And all of these things can sort of intersect in a in a weird way. And I like when they're extreme and I like how weird they are when you bring them together. It's like salt without sugar is not worth very much. But as a as a Swedish um, reader or consumer of British culture, you, you notice that there is pride in 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 uh, in the working class. I mean, and how it's portrayed as well. Mm -hmm. And I get the feeling that there is or there is like real pride within the british working class as well is that like true or is it sentimental or is it that's a fantastic question um 
they've all been fantastic questions. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> but that one just really struck me because it's a complicated thing. It's, mm. it's all of it. Mm. I think sometimes we can really romanticize the working class and we can, that idea of like solidarity and we're yeah. all in it together and we're going to get through it is true and is very important. Mm. But for characters like Shuggy and Agnes who cannot conform to the only place they know, you can also be excluded by the working class. Yeah. You can find very quickly as a mother who can't be a good Catholic mother that you're sort of cast out as a young man who can't be like the other boys you can be, you can be cast out. So it's, it is like everything in life, much more complicated mm. and much more nuanced. And, and I'm always curious about that. Mungo and James have it as well. This is the only place they want to be. This is the only place they make sense. Mm. It's the only place they know. And they're struggling to belong. Mm. And there's been a huge shift also in the working class that Thatcher had a, a role in with the dissolution of uh, unions and the organized bargaining power of the working class. Mm. And now that's also changed now where people feel much more lonely and isolated yeah. and not necessarily part of a broader thing. And and so it's all always evolving and it's all very nuanced. It's it's not just one thing. Mm. Do, you, do you get uh, letters? Well... People don't write letters anymore. Emails. Do you get? Uh, <laughs> do you know what it's like for a Mango or a, a Shaggy or a James at the moment in in Glasgow? Well, I think they the tell you. Yeah, <laughs> I think the question about queerness isn't necessarily just about Glasgow in the 80s and 90s. It was Sweden, perhaps accepted. But it was pretty lousy everywhere around the world. Um, this is not a question about working class queerness just in Glasgow. I meet people everywhere. I meet people from, like I said, Pittsburgh or Albany or Naples, Italy, outside of Paris and France. And it was bad. Mm. You know, it was very bad. And it, it was part of so society's... Uh, the fact that they weren't educated enough yet. And it just seemed even good people were saying and doing homophobic things because they just didn't know better. Mm. But then there was real bigots at work amongst it who, and there still are today. Think of the American South and what politicians, organized politicians are trying to do to trans kids. So it's all of those things. But one of the things specifically about Glasgow that's remarkable, that gives me a ton of hope, is it was voted the eighth best place in the world to be queer. Um, that would just come out from Attitude magazine. And so people think my book is historical fiction. It wasn't. Uh, you know, it's within my lifetime. I'm not that old to be <laughs> historical fiction. I look old, but I'm not really. But when, what did you think? What was your reaction when you heard about that? Like, <laughs> I don't think so. Or no, no. It, it, I didn't. I had known it, and I'd also known for people in Glasgow in the eighties if they were middle class or they had some mobility or some access to culture outside. They also had a great gay life. There was there was lots of nightclubs. There was lots of bars. This is specifically examining people who are stuck on the streets that they live in and they don't mm. get to see the rest of the world. You know, I wrote my stories for The New Yorker because I had a young friend who was in his 30s and he couldn't comprehend being queer before the internet. And mm. when I was a young gay man, the thing I did when I was 15, 16, 17, I answered Lonely Hearts in the back pages of a, of a teen magazine. It was very, considering how we deal with personal ads today, this was very vanilla. Very, <laughs> it was just about, you know, people finding pen pals. Mm. And, you know, and I would write to these other young men all across the nation. And, you know, I'd be like, what's the weather like where you are? I like Michelle Pfeiffer. Do you like Michelle Pfeiffer? <laughs> you know, and they weren't very deep. I would hate for anyone to see these letters now. But it was about... Um, It was about coping with a feeling of loneliness and, mm. and extreme isolation. And I wrote those stories in The New Yorker because I had a young queer friend who should know his queer history. And he was like, you were alive before email? And I was like, <laughs> I was alive. I'm not that old, but I was. And so we couldn't just open a computer and say, oh, there's someone in Venezuela that likes the music I like or the mm. you know, makeup tutorials or whatever it is. And so that's what I mean about erasing the queer experience. We were so sometimes ready to go to a bright sunrise mm. that we forget where we've just been. Mm. Are you right about the hotlines? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Yep, I won't go into personal stories about that, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we had those for many as well, and it was like, you know, Hetalinian, I think it was called here. Uh, that mixture of like conversation and, and finding maybe someone who, who was nice and had the same ideas or interests, and then the 
um, sexual panting uh-huh. in the background. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that was a coming of age thing for many young queer people um, of the generation, and mm. and you would always get the fear when the phone bill would come in at the end of the month, and there'd be 120 quid, yeah. and you'd be like, I don't know what it was, and of course you would lie, but, mm. but you were just lonely. You just yeah. wanted to know that there was someone out there like you, mm. um, and so it was. Was that was rather important, wasn't it? It was. It was important. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the thing is, is um, there was no visibility at the time. Remember that Thatcher Section Twenty Eight is a law, and that is very much like Florida's "Don't Say Gay" bill. And it says that nobody can acknowledge alternative sexuality. We cannot talk to kids if a kid comes to you at school and said, "I'm being bullied for being gay." They're calling me these names. The teacher had to say, "Okay, go back to your seat." You know, there was so there was no even dialogue allowed. Uh, it's a time when the the uh, the age of consent is 21 for gay people. So if you're 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, you're against the law. Um, it's under the scourge of AIDS. It's under the fear of AIDS. Uh, and it's a time when there's no real positive media representation. So Mungo and James feel very lonely. They feel very unseen. Mm. Uh, as you said, you're, you're not boring your readers at all. And uh, It was a terrible <laughs> answer. I'm so sorry. <laughs> It was no. an arrogant answer. Actually, no, well it was, was not. It was not. It's a good description. Uh, and you're not. You're not boring us. But, uh, but, <laughs> no. Um, as I as I told you before, I, I mean, I, I really, really appreciate this book. It's it's wonderful, but it's really tough reading sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many of you have read it. A few, yeah. I, think that was my I mean, I, I totally, I totally recommend it, but it's um, there's a lot of pain. Uh-huh. So, do you, do you think about that before when you write? H- how much pain can I uh, can I put into one book, or how much pain can people deal with, or it's just this is the way it is. This is how I'm writing it, or. Yeah, I write it from for the characters. Yeah. So I think about what they are going through and what feels real and justified to them. And I think art should move you. I think art should really t- make you sit up in your seat and make you feel everything, make you feel joy and mm-hmm. terror and, you know, question mm-hmm. uh, your existence and society. And so all I really try to do is to have a reader finish a book and close the last page and then feel what I want to feel, which is, Oh my God, are you going to be okay? And please don't go. You know, I want yeah. just people to be moved and so convinced and invested in these characters and in this world. Mm-hmm. That's really it. So I never think about pain threshold because I think if you do that, then you're you're pandering mm-hmm. to somebody's idea of a comfortable life, uh, if that makes sense. And, you know, let's be frank. Mm-hmm. If we are sitting in this auditorium reading books, our life has a fair amount of comfort in it. There's a lot of people who cannot get to books in life. And that's not where I should be directing my art to what people need for a comfort. I should be trying to open a world for a reader. Mm. And you do. Mm. Uh, You're going to read for us, aren't you? Yeah, I'd love to. So what's the context? Yeah, so this actually comes slightly towards the end of the book. And as I explained, Mungo is 15 and he has an older sister, Jodie, who has been really delegated to be a young mother. It's an incredibly sexist thing. But as their mother has just keeps disappearing, Jodie's almost had to raise her brothers. But there's a love triangle there between Maureen, the mother, Jodie, the sister, and Mungo. They're both fighting for Mungo's affection and his allegiance, and he's torn between them. And Jodie is very angry at their mother, and she wants Mungo to be angry too, but Mungo is just this vessel of love. He just adores everybody in his family without ever really criticizing them. And so they're sitting on the sofa one day, they're curled up like two cats, and Jodie is looking at her younger brother and just processing him internally. Mungo's capacity for love frustrated her. His loving wasn't selflessness, he simply couldn't help it. Momo needed so little and he produced too much so that it all seemed like a horrible waste. It was a harvest no one had seeded and it blossomed from a vine no one had tended. It should have withered years ago, like hers had, like Hamish's had. Yet Mungo had all this love to give and it lay about him like ripened fruit and nobody bothered to gather it up. Mrs. Campbell had once said Mungo's forgiveness was biblical, but Jodie didn't care much for the Bible. She thought it was stupid of him to be so easily exploited. She thought it was a little bit sad, a little bit weak. Her brother had all this love and forgiveness for an elfin wee woman who thought about herself first, last and in between. She was a terrible mother. 
Jodie didn't like to say that about another woman, but she was. She was terrible. Hamish knew it. Jodie knew it. And she wondered when Mungo would too. Mungo sighed in a way that shook her bones. She could see the television reflected in his limpid irises. His pupils had expanded. His gaze was unfocused. I wish you would talk to me, Mungo. He answered her without looking at her. I talk to you every single day. No, I just wish you would tell me what you're feeling. Feeling? He thought about it for a moment. I'm hungry again, but I can't be bothered to get up. Jodie shoved him away from her. He was Momo's youngest son, but he was also her confidant, her lady's maid, and her errand boy. He was her one flattering mirror, her teenage diary, her electric blanket, her doormat. He was her best pal, the dog she hardly walked, and her greatest romance. He was her cheer on a dreich morning, the only laughter in her audience. Jodie shunted him again, but Mungo only grumbled and curled tighter around her. Her brother was her mother's minor moon, her warmest sun, and at the exact same time, a tiny satellite that she'd forgotten about. He would orbit her for eternity, even as she and then he broke into bits. Jodie flicked the tip of his nose. Sputnik. What? I'm watching this. Jodie ran her fingers through her brother's hair. Mungo smelled of a strange new deodorant, something animal and loud. It was the scent the boys in her ear smothered themselves in. It was full of pheromones, and it held promises of a fight or a fingering. It didn't suit him. She sniffed the top of his head. Pack it in. He shifted like he was uncomfortable. As he slowly resettled beside her, he took care to make sure he wasn't squashing her, and Jodie thought about how Mungo had moulded himself so entirely around Momo, how she had formed him to the exact component piece that she had been missing, and now that she didn't need him anymore, he was stuck in this weirdly specific shape. She wondered what lay ahead for her baby brother, what woman would love him now. She hoped for someone who would be grateful for his good looks and his reticent ways, Someone who'd feel blessed by his quiet attention, who would take all of his love and keep it safe. There would be girls who would want to mother him forever, who would be reduced by the helpless dip of his eyes into some primitive need to cook and clean and care for him. There could be others who would exploit him, who would feel so low about themselves that they would see his love for them as weakness, something he should be punished for. Mungo's eyes came back into focus. He turned his head to meet her gaze and frowned. Who the fuck are you staring at? <laughs> you, Mungo. I like you. You're good stuff. Thank you. So, um, moved again. <laughs> um, yeah, when... When can we expect the third part in your <laughs> Glaswegian Well, actually, there's a small... Series. Yeah, there's a small... Um, in English, we call it an Easter egg. I don't mm -hmm. know if that makes sense in, mm -hmm. in Swedish. But there's a little hint, a little treat for readers in Young Mungo. Mm -hmm. And some readers miss it and some readers don't. But, but I am... You placed an information place, about... Yeah, about something. Sequel. I can't tell you. I'd spoil it for you, uh, but but I think anyone who who is curious about what's going on in the world and what happened to the Baines, we'll, we'll find out some things. And and for me, Mungo and Shuggy are lives, real lives to me that cross each other's paths and and will go on. And and I don't think it will be in my next book or or the next book, but eventually I think we might hear more from them. I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> Thank you, Douglas Stewart. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm too old to stand, so I sit. <laughs> now, now, Douglas, uh, I guess you understand that you are admired, and I presume that you understand that you are already an important literary voice. And you must understand that you are very much loved. <laughs> no can't cry. both cry tonight, because yeah. it's your penultimate Stop show. it, stop it. <laughs> Because we're, we're making fools of ourselves. Last time, <laughs> last August, I think I presented you with, an, with a paper knife in the shape of an alligator. Yes. Yes. I crave for wildlife, you see. Uh -huh. So this time I'm going to give you 
a heavy a lioness in concrete. Oy. And she will be close to you and she will guard you. Thank you. And she will roar at every stupid person trying to... <laughs> <laughs> Thank so you so much, Ingmar. And I'm so happy that you reappeared. Yeah. yeah. The question is, is what do we give you for everything you've given us? And we haven't figured that out yet, but you have... Stop it. What do we give you for... We, we, we're debating... Your presence is a gift, and your presence all through these years. That is the true gift, together with, with our visiting writers and our visiting moderators. So that is a true gift. And Marlene, you're going to have... Have you seen this? It's a very peculiar book where a, a, a Norwegian publisher, he has decided... Yeah, I thought it was Norwegian. Yeah, he has decided to... to character to make portraits of writers all over the world in food. Oh. In <laughs> and he called Margaret Atwood becomes Margaret Spinetwood and she's made in, in spinach. <laughs> and we're gonna browse through this during the dinner afterwards at, okay. at Portal. <laughs> so I would be simple from, I'd just be a boiled, boiled egg. egg. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of olives. Yeah. Douglas Stewart, accompanied by Molly Nolgren, and no more crying. That was fun. That was fun. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And within a, few, within a few minutes, you meet uh, Douglas in the foyer during a, a book signing session. And tomorrow is the very last program for me. You will meet the Moroccan, the Moroccan, uh, I can't speak now, the Moroccan writer Abdel Ataya. And he's been residing in, in Paris since way back. And he will meet his dear friend. Last time when he was here, in 2013, he was accompanied by the late Richard Wolff. This time he's accompanied by the singer and, and songwriter Lisa Ekdal. So they will talk tomorrow. And maybe she will sing a cappella, I don't know. It will be a complete surprise for me and for you. So do come back. There's a few, a few tickets left. Thank you. Mm -hmm.